and then we'll have about a 10 minute break between each lesson. Good to be here this evening, and I appreciate everyone coming out. Thank the church for the invitation to come, as always. Um, like Casey mentioned, I've been given the book of Obadiah, and um, yesterday uh, I asked Brother Doug Skinner what he knew about Obadiah, and uh, he said nothing. And he said that none of you would know anything about Obadiah either. <laughs> and so I could make up whatever I wanted and you would accept it. Um, so that's what I did. No. <laughs> okay, not really. Um, but I do appreciate the opportunity to come and try to deliver this lesson. I have uh, perhaps struggled more than normal. This is a difficult book. I've never heard anybody preach out of Obadiah. I've never heard anybody quote a verse from Obadiah. Before Brother Casey called, I didn't know Obadiah was in the Bible. (laughs) But uh, I'll do the best I can to try to present this lesson tonight. Uh, I printed off about 35 copies of an outline, and so I had them up here, and I think they've already, some people have already grabbed them if you came in late. And so I know they usually put those online, and uh, I'll use some of it heavily, read specifically from some of it, and then, of course, make some comments through it. Um, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Bible. It's 21 verses long. And so um, we'll take a reading from there here in a few moments. Um, but I want to give you some basic facts about the book of Obadiah or uh, before we begin too far. And so we'll start with the who. Who is Obadiah? And the answer is we don't really know. Um, there are 13 people in the scriptures named Obadiah. And I have those references here to various people who were named Obadiah. It does not seem like that the Obadiah that wrote this book is the same one as those. I suppose it's possible, but it does not seem to be the case. So if he was a separate one from those other ones, and there are 13 of them, um, when did he write it? We don't really know. Um, There certainly is internal evidence that suggests possibilities. Uh, It could have been during Elisha's time. It seems most probable that it was during the Babylonian siege. So that's what I've gone with as I tried to look at various references to a group of people that we'll talk about extensively in the lesson called the Edomites. Obadiah's prophecy and what he says about the Edomites aligns very well with Jeremiah, what he says, what the Book of Lamentations says, what Ezekiel, and then what the prophetic Psalm 137 Psalm says after the Babylonian siege on Jerusalem. And so, it seems most probable that that is the case, but we're not entirely sure when it was. Um, The audience, we know that for certain, and that is this book is written to the Edomites. And we'll talk about them here in a few moments. 
a little bit more. But the Edomites were considered the cousins. So very often in the scriptures, they're referred to as the brother of Israel. And we'll see one of those references in our scripture reading here in a little bit. They were descendants of Esau. And of course, Israel was descendants of Jacob, later changed his name to Israel. And then what is the message of the book of Obadiah? Um, Well, Obadiah is denouncing and calling forth judgment on the people of Edom for their behavior whenever the enemy, whoever that was, presumably the Babylonians, sieged Jerusalem. So essentially what's taking place here in the book of Obadiah, or the events preceding this, is that there is an attack on Jerusalem. Edom, or the Edomites, saw who was going to win. They decided to jump in on the side of the winners and contribute to the downfall of Jerusalem and Israel. And so, uh, in our lesson, though there are perhaps many uh, different things we could say, I tried to stick with the theme that I was given. The title of this lesson is The Hidden Things of Edom. And so, I'm going to have kind of a minor point, and then what seems to be the major point of the prophet Obadiah in his book that we're going to focus on. And so, if you look on page two of our outline... It seems necessary to give a little bit of history between the nation of Edom and Israel before we get too far into the lesson. Of course, noting that it was the sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau, that they, Edom and Israel descended from, this relationship between Edom and Israel is prophesied about a long time ago. Uh, and so here's what it says in Genesis chapter 25. It says, And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so... Why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. This unpleasant prophecy was fulfilled in the lives of Jacob and Esau, and this familial struggle continued in their descendants, the eventual nations of Edom and Israel and Edom. On one hand, we're going to have Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. And God providentially grew this nation during the hard years of Egyptian bondage. He also provided them with a civil and ceremonial law, which was later used to regulate the theocratic government of Israel. And finally, it was a nation who God empowered to complete a successful conquest of the land of Canaan, which gave them possession of the physical land promised to their progenitor Abraham. So that's on one side, Israel, Jacob's descendants. Now if we look to the opposite side, we have Esau, who fathered what became known as the Dukes of Esau and the nation of Edom in Genesis chapter 36, verses 40 through 43. He rebelled against his parents by vindictively seeking out Ishmael and married two of his descendants. This rebellious act illustrates the defiant, or what the Hebrew writer calls the profane, which means ungodly, attitude that Esau embodied throughout his life, and one the Hebrew writer warned those Christians to avoid. Hebrews 12, 14-17. This tumultuous relationship between these two brothers began a chain of unfortunate, though not inevitable, events which had significant cultural implications in successive generations. 
you weren't able to follow all that, I want to try to lay a few things out about Jacob and Esau here. One, God's hand was upon. One, now both of them we can see in their lives sinned a lot. One had a repentant attitude. The other had a defiant attitude. Now, in truth, some of this division also started in their parents. Favoritism has consequences. And if there's any truer example in Scriptures, I don't know of it, than whenever you show favoritism to one child and then another versus Jacob and Esau. It creates these two nations. And what we're going to kind of dive into for a few moments is about a 700-year history, and there's a lot more that I could have included that I didn't, but a 700-year history of these descendants constantly warring against one another. And the first prominent example we see of this is after Jacob and all of his children go into Egypt. We know the story from the end of the book of Genesis into Exodus that 70 went in. They stayed there. They were there for a very long time. In that period of time, they grew to be millions of people. God, through the hand of Moses, delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. And in route to the promised land, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, God gives a command to Moses and to the Israelites. Deuteronomy 2 verses 1 through 8, it says this, And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom. Thus saith thy brother Israel. And notice the reference there. He says, he's speaking to the king of Edom, thy brother. So they're acknowledging their common ancestry here. Thou knowest all the travail that hath befallen us, how our fathers went down into Egypt, and we have dwelt in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians vexed us and our fathers. And when we cried unto the Lord, he heard our voice, and sent an angel, and hath brought us forth out of Egypt. And behold, we are in Kadesh, a city in the uttermost of thy border. Let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, neither will we drink of water of the wells. We will go by the king's highway. We will not turn in the right nor to the left until we have passed thy borders. And Edom said unto him, Thou shalt not pass by me, lest I come out against thee with the sword. And the children of Israel said unto him, We will go by the highway, and if I and my cattle drink of thy water, then I will pay for it. I will only, without doing anything else, go through on my feet. And he said, Thou shalt not go through. And Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border, wherefore Israel turned away from him. So on one hand, we have in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 2, God giving Israel an explicit command. He said, pass through Edom. Because when you pass through Edom, a rumor is going to spread all throughout Canaan of how great of a number that you are. And it's going to create fear both in the Edomites and in the Canaanites. Moses, rather, asked permission. The Edomite king, you heard the response. You may not pass through here. Now, the terms what Moses brought forward were about as beneficial to the Edomites as you can can be. We're not going to drink your water. We're not going to stop. Nothing. All we're going to do 
is try to discreetly cut through your land to go to the land that God had promised to us. And the Edomite king, vindictive, angry, whatever might have been um, the reason for it, he denies Moses' request. And thus, from a scriptural standpoint, though there are some minor things that take place before this, really epitomize the relationship between Edom and Israel moving forward. The next period of time that we are going to jump to is the, the king's period. So, under Saul, we can read in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 14 that Saul tried to expand the territory of Israel by conquering some of the Edomite territory. In David's time as king, he attempted, in 1 Kings 11, to slaughter every male Edomite. He did not succeed, but his son Solomon was also plagued with fighting for his entire reign of his kingship. Other kings, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Azamiah, and Ahaz, also fought with the Edomites throughout their reigns. This constant warring was remembered by the Edomites. Because what they do throughout the history of this relationship is they are a smaller group. They are a smaller nation, as was predicted long ago to Rebekah. And so they don't have the power on their own to attack Israel. They simply join up constantly with Israel's enemies to try to harm Israel and inflict pain whenever they're given the opportunity to do so. So what do we learn from this? This is a little bit of history, and it has really its origin in two brothers and their tumultuous relationship. This provides a stern warning to us that the smallest speck of unrepented bitterness or resentment produced by family discord, can have unintended consequences in future generations. This is discernible in the unfortunate history between these two families. It is terrible how the sinful attitudes between these two brothers metastasized and created irreconcilable division between their offspring. This same pattern is observable in many Christian families today. Siblings or family members refuse to reconcile and instead analyze every word, action, and decision through the distorted prism of resentment. One or both sides are quick to take offense, James 1.19. And eventually, these misperceived slights compel action, and the cycle of sin and retaliation begins. This cycle results in division, which is an affront to our holy perfectly unified triune God who desires oneness in His creation, especially among His people. John 17, 21 and 22. God calls His people to reconcile quickly, even to halt worship in order to make peace. Matthew 5, 24. I want to pause for a moment and say this. Jacob and Esau's division was avoidable. It was not predestined to occur. Nor was the resultant effect that it had on their offspring. At any point, from generation to generation, they could have humbled themselves, repented, and attempted to make peace. And yet in this fallen world, it has to be pointed out that when resentment and bitterness, two of the most powerful emotions 
grab a hold of us that as a concept, yes, to those from the outside, it would seem easy to make peace. But in reality, when we're ones that have those powerful emotions and know all of the background and all of its complexity, it's much easier for us to hold on to decades and intergenerational anger towards the opposite side than to just come together and make peace. That's one of the minor lessons I think that we learn just from the fact that Obadiah is writing to Edom. Let that division cease. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.24, makes a pretty profound point. If you have an ought against him, leave your gift at the altar. Go make peace. That's a pretty powerful point that Jesus is making in that context. Let us resist the resentful spirit of Edom and assert the Christian spirit where love covers a multitude of sin. And be careful that we do not render evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrawise blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called. A failure to adhere to a superior spirit of grace towards our fellow man will result in future generations paying the steep cost for our sins. God forbid that ever happens. Now we're going to jump into, so what we try to give you here for a moment is just a little bit of background of the relationship where it started with Jacob and Esau, and then some events that occurred, though not all the events, but events that occurred from their two offspring, the Edomites and the Israelites. And so we are going to read, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there to the book of Obadiah. Probably never heard that in church before. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1. And we're just going to read the first 14 verses. There are 21 total verses. But we're going to read the first 14 because this is where our title is found. The vision of Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord. An ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Taman, which is the, the, one of the cities in Edom, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob Shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. If the day that thou stoodest on the other side, and the day that the strangers carried away captives his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. 
But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered in the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou should not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of, the, of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. So I'm going to stop our reading there. Now what is going on here is he is rebuking them and prophetically determining the judgment that God is going to call upon the Edomites. Now, you'll notice at the very beginning of the chapter, or the very first few verses, he references them feeling secure in the high mountains. Now, if you look on the first page, you'll notice that Edom was southeast of Israel. Mount Seir is one of the other references that you'll see throughout the Scriptures that refer to locations in Edom. And so the Edomites lived up in the mountains and in the caves, and they had fortified cities up there. And so you would think that you're safe, you're secure, that not only is there your citizens to fight and your weaponry to fight, but even nature itself is providing a protection for you. And so what we're going to see in the attitude that they're being rebuked for is that Edom had become arrogant because they perceived an imbalance of power. So here's what they're saying about themselves. We're protected in the high mountain caves of Edom, some hundreds of miles southeast of Israel and Judah. We're allying with the most, presumably, what I think to be, the most powerful nation in the world at this time. We're not leading the forces against Israel We're just merely coming in and partaking of the victory and the spoils that the Babylonians and now we, the Edomites, will be able to enjoy. Now you take that picture of them, and we also find out a different thing that the Edomites did that God took notice of. There was a group of Israelites, evidently, that had escaped the initial siege by the Babylonians and had gone some either secret way or it just escaped from them. And the Edomites stayed there waiting just in case there were any Israelites that escaped the siege. And they caught them and they took them back and they either enslaved them or they put them to death. That's what he's rebuking them for in verse 14. Now, in that, so that's the Edomite side. Let's look at Israel's side. Their city is absolutely destroyed. Their princes and kings are either put to death, enslaved and taken hundreds and hundreds, I believe 800-something miles east. Everything that is left is from a carnal perspective perspective valueless. And so, naturally, when this picture arises and you see that imbalance of power and the advantage on one side, 
the tendency in the conquerors is to get proud. And that's exactly what they do. Now, I want to read something here. Um, God calls out in verse 3. It says, The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me to the ground? So notice that's a question that the Edomites are asking. We're so confident. Who can bring us down? Israel may have been unable to respond to Edom's aggression, but the Edomites wrongly dismissed the possibility of divine retribution and sought to increase the suffering of Israel through the siege by capturing those who safely escaped escaped Jerusalem and by rejoicing in the suffering of its inhabitants. So, in one sense, the Edomites were right. There was nothing that Israel could do, but there was something God could do. God succinctly declares to the prophet Obadiah an ominous judgment. Quote, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. Now, I want to pause for a moment because we're going to talk more about the application of this, which seems to be the major theme. So the first theme a minor theme we're trying to bring out this this evening is that our relationships with family and settling disagreement has cascading effects on successive generations, and we need to carefully make sure that we extend forgiveness and seek forgiveness when we need it. The second more prominent point of the book of Obadiah is God will ultimately judge the world fairly. Nobody is going to escape God's fair judgment. And so, that's what he tells him in Obadiah. But he goes a step further, and this is where the theme of our lesson comes from. So the severity of Edom's judgment, so he tells them he's going to be judged, now he's telling them to what extent they're going to be judged, is expressed in verses 5 and 6, and is where the title of our lesson is found. If thieves came to thee... If robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they have not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How were the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought out? So he's using sort of an analogy here. He's saying, if a thief comes, he takes what he needs, which insinuates there's going to still be some things left. If, they, if people come, grape gatherers come, they leave some grapes to be gleaned, which was a, a common Israelite practice. But the severity of judgment upon Edom is going to be so severe that even the hidden things of Edom are going to be taken. Or in other words... Nothing can be protected. Not the smallest amount of things will go untouched by divine retribution. God's judgment is complete, is what the hidden things of Edom is talking about. And that is certainly true then, and it's also true now, which he's going to get to here in a moment. 
When God judges Edom, it will be so complete that there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. Obadiah 1.18 I mean, think about that judgment. I was reading this lesson to Kathleen this afternoon, and I said, I read that first, and she said, well, today, who are the people of Edom? And I said, they don't exist. What that just said. Which shows you the finality of judgment that God levied upon these people. In other words, Obadiah prophesied that God would annihilate the Edomites from the face of the earth. The conquering nation would confiscate even the hidden things of Edom until absolute judgment from God is accomplished. Now, here in a few moments, we're going to read verse 15. And what the prophet does is he includes in the very last few verses of the book of Obadiah, he slightly pivots from just facing the Edomites and he expands it to all the heathen nations of the world. And he begins to show that the same pattern of judgment that he used against the Edomites, God will one day use against all the nations of the world. We want to pause for a moment, however, and consider the experiential aspect of being Israel when Edom is coming in and doing these things. Because speaking of all these things in an abstract sense is pretty easy. But all of us have been in the position, not to probably the degree, but have been in the position where we are being oppressed by someone who is haughty and arrogant. And in that setting, the Scriptures are very clear to point out the tendencies that we have when we are being oppressed. On one hand, we begin to doubt that God sees, hears, and will respond to our plight. Let me read for a moment. Throughout the Scriptures, God is careful to reveal the suffering of His people at the hands of the wicked. He shows that the righteous tend to fall prey to two sinful responses. Number one, to doubt God's faithfulness. Or, number two, to take revenge against our oppressors. I could have picked a whole lot of verses, and many of you know many of the verses that would support this claim, but pick two of the Psalms, and it says this, Throughout Psalm 37, God tempers our tendency towards vengeance when He says, The Lord will not leave Him, the righteous, in His hands the wicked's hands, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. In Psalm 73, the writer encourages the righteous not to despair when he says, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. We can learn from this book the severity and completeness of of divine judgment upon all nations. The scriptures instruct us, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves but rather give place unto wrath. 
For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. There is a culminating day of judgment when we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. On that day, God will see to the reconciling of all things to himself. The complete vindication of the falsely accused and every creature, angelic and earthly, will receive the just recompense for their deeds. So I want to try to show what I see as being this major theme, and that is it's ultimately pointing to a final culminating day of God's judgment. Now, when we live down here by faith, not seeing the whole picture, it is very tempting to believe that people get away with things. Attitude, I'm not talking about major things. Anything. Thoughts that are never revealed. Intentions of the heart. So deeds which are good, but are rooted in selfish, proud intentions. God sees all that. He, just like the conquering nation of Edom, will search out even the hidden things. All of it will be pulled out. And no matter how well somebody thinks that they have protected their actions, their attitudes behind a, a hidden veil that nobody could see, just like the Edomites, God is going to search it all out. On the day of judgment, just imagine an endless sea of people and everything that has ever occurred in thought, deed, or action being dumped out. And there be nothing left up here yet spoken or revealed. That's what the day of judgment is going to be like. It tells us that in Revelation. You know the text. I'm not going to read it all. It's in our outline. There are two parts I will read. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. When injustice prevails, we are tempted to doubt the purity of God's character. We see the victims of injustice assaulted, receiving no recompense for their godly response. Simultaneously, the actions of heinous, proud sinners go unpunished and are even shamelessly celebrated by the world. But we do not need to expect fairness in this life. Yesterday in our service, um, I called on somebody to dismiss in prayer. And he made that statement in his prayer, and it just was like a prod to my heart. He said, Lord, help us not to seek fairness in this life. Now, I'll confess that is extremely difficult for me because my personality is one that hinges largely on fairness and things being equitable and right as I see them. And so often I strive for rightness. 
But we do not need to expect fairness in this life. We know, we know, a day of reckoning is on the horizon of eternity. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever, anything is another way to say that. A man soweth, that shall he also reap. The just God of eternal judgment will vindicate the righteous and punish the wicked in due time. Let patience have her perfect work. Some rush to set the world right. And I raise my hand here. I often want the world set right. But finite creatures such as ourselves attempting to distribute absolute justice in a world as fallen as ours is impossible. I, I think of, I have four boys, and there will be very brief moments of peace through the day that are then interrupted with three people running up to me, and everybody's yelling, and some people are crying, and they're all pointing fingers at each other. And so I attempt in this very elementary situation to untangle the web. And I confess to my boys very often, I am not fair. Not because I'm trying to be unfair, but because I don't have the capacity to be fair. I don't know everything. I don't know the intents. I don't know the patterns of your relationship. God does. We should try when we are able to be fair. But we will never untangle the complexity, nuance, hidden sin, and concealed intentions which exist in most situations. I want to pause for a moment. I've got five minutes left. I want to pause for a moment and say this. One of the reasons why we ought to be very careful to judge anything is because most situations are so complex. The facts that we are dealing with are so incomplete. There is no way we could level fair judgment, even in our own estimation. And so if you want to be gracious, following the Spirit of Christ, do that. But also be gracious because humility demands it. You don't know hardly anything about that person. Even if you think you do. Because isn't the reality that most of who we are takes place in the unspoken parts of our minds anyway? We don't need to be quick to jump to a conclusion about anything. That doesn't mean we can't level judgment. God's called us to at times. But it's based on discernible acts and words and facts that are to be compared to what God has already spoken not what we think should transpire. Rather than strain for fairness, we must do as the Father has done. Oh, I love this. By committing all judgment to His Son. Jesus Christ, who will perfectly judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. On that final day of judgment, the hidden things will be revealed. Luke 8, 17. 
and God will justly punish and reward those according to all the facts, those known and hidden perfectly. This may be part of what Jesus meant when He instructed us, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. In conclusion, two points that we're trying to make. The relationships we have matter. The unrepented sin which permeates those relationships can have far-reaching consequences. We should repent and make peace with one another as God commanded to avoid seeing the consequences of our, sinful, of our sins suffered by our offspring. Furthermore, when injustice temporarily prevails. So I want to say this real quick. We have a nation that is obsessed with justice now, supposedly. Every group has to be righted, which is always so strange to me how you're going to give them in proportion what they're due. It's a lot tougher task than what it appears on the surface. Injustice is temporary. All injustice is temporary. One day we will live in a realm where justice always prevails. Even mercy and grace will be gone. But I won't need it anymore. And neither will you. Furthermore, when injustice temporarily prevails, do not doubt God or seek revenge. God's judgment upon those who persecute His people will be just and complete. The righteous will never be forsaken, nor will His seed beg for bread. When you suffer at the hands of injustice, rather than seek revenge, pray for forbearance, courage, restraint, and faith. God will show Himself faithful. In humility, we yearn for that day. Not because we live perfectly, but because you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Praise God that he will not destroy us, but welcome us into the building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We pray God hastens that day. That'll conclude our lesson. Certainly appreciate the good lesson tonight. Appreciate uh, Brother Brad's study and certainly give us a lot to thank on.